Hello and welcome back. My name is Sage, and once again, I'm so grateful that you decided to share this space with me today. I would love to hear how you choose to listen to the podcast, whether it be on a walk or as background noise while you get some other work done. Maybe you listen while you're getting ready in the morning. Let me know on Substack or on Apple Podcasts where you can leave a comment. I would love to just envision where you are and what you're doing. I wanted to upload this episode after last week's because I think they are two components of a larger discussion. If you haven't listened yet, I recommend going back to last week's episode about letting go of the false self and listening to that one first. We talked about disidentifying with the beliefs, ideas, and projections that no longer serve us or who we want to become. I talked about the subconscious mind and why it's important to do mental reprogramming work. So I'll be expanding on that today, but not providing as much of an in-depth explanation or defining those terms like I did in the previous episode. Today we'll be talking about the cost of sacrificing authenticity and originality for connection, the importance of spirituality and practices of devotion, the ability to be an anomaly in pursuit of something greater, and using some teachings from Hindu philosophy to help frame this conversation. I'll begin with some reflections on childhood. I grew up in a Christian household and learned many Bible stories in my youth. My very first job around 12 years old was watching the younger kids at our church's summer camp. I was so elated to make my own money. I accepted the position, doling out many cups of goldfish, and teaching toddlers Jonah and the whale with marker-drawn characters cut out of printer paper. I was fervently religious, but in my own way. I desire the ancient wisdom, not the newer interpretations that rewrite the Bible in the tone of a glossy magazine targeted at adolescence. I stopped going to youth group when I realized it wasn't a study of the text itself, but a seemingly never-ending series of icebreaker games. I was a best at hide and seek because I would wander far off to the other side of the campus and hang out on the swing set near the garden until my ride came to pick me up. On my own time, I started reading the Old Testament to uncover what truths we were not discussing in Sunday school. I openly asked God about society, life, and suffering. I envisioned pursuing the path of asceticism that allowed me to live a contemplative life. As a teenager, my curiosity expanded beyond Christianity to all world religions. I would spend entire afternoons at my local library, wandering through the sections, scanning the various tags denoting topic classifications, and stopping whenever one stood out to me. Over a decade later, and I still vividly recall the first time I saw the words Eastern religion, my interest was piqued. My eyes scanned the multitude of books with dark black calligraphy and symbols I did not recognize. Each one looked so fascinating and unfamiliar. I grabbed two from the shelf, Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu and Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Shunryu Suzuki. I took both of them to one of the heavy, solid wooden desks in the middle of the library, the kind of desk that seems to be made out of an entire oak tree impossible to lift or move. The kind that your grandmother may have in her own home, a true antique, claiming they just don't make furniture like this anymore. 
and you nod in agreement because the dorm line from Ikea doesn't have that same comforting, musty smell. In one instance, these books changed my life and led me down the path I am still on of being a purveyor, a studier of the world's religions, ancient mythologies, and indigenous faiths. I often feel out of place in my generation and the culture I am immersed in. For many years, I have sought out the spaces where I can connect with people on a deeper level, engage in philosophical conversations, and discuss spirituality with others. Throughout college, I spent my evenings in Zazen at a local monastery rather than going out to bars. I wasn't interested in dating casually or using any kind of app to meet guys. In my early 20s, I abstained from alcohol for over a year when I realized the use of it could easily become a coping mechanism and dependency. I always get a little uncomfortable when asked the question, what did you do this weekend, by colleagues or friends? I feel the expectation of some wild story about making drunken mistakes, but my answer is always the same. I spend the weekends doing things that I find nourishing, whether it be spending time in nature, going to the farmer's market, or taking a really long bath with candles, rose petals, and soothing music. These things make me feel happy, grounded, and fulfilled. But people seem to be bored by these responses. I can feel the judgmental tone behind their comments. So, you never really go out, do you? Or, do you have any friends? My own belief in my internal compass and my acceptance of my uniqueness seemed to dwindle the older I got. When something is repeatedly invalidated by the outside world, it can make you begin to question yourself. I wondered if I was truly missing out on something that everyone else seemed to be experiencing while I was focusing on different pursuits. My friends were living lifestyles completely opposite from me. While I accepted the beauty in each of our various stages and chapters of life, I felt shamed for being more introverted and finding joy in different hobbies. After a while, being looked at like you are not normal for your own values, morals, and interests is enough to chip away slowly at your self-esteem until you second-guess your own inclinations. I think back to elementary and middle school. It is usually the kid who sits in the corner reading their book who gets bullied, or the one who has some kind of noticeable difference, whether it be in their appearance, especially racial differences, personality, family, ability level, or anything else that might make them stand out. When you are on the inner circle of the social cliques, you have amity. You're shielded from the cruel words, the pranks, the whispers, the laughter. The second you stand up for someone else, question, or disagree with the leader of the group, you too are then cast out and bullied just the same as everyone else. Wearing ill-fitting jeans or having a bad haircut could taint your reputation for years ahead. I remember when this happened one day to a boy in my friend group. The memory is vague because whatever initiated the bullying seemed so inconsequential. I believe it was the day that one of the popular girls noticed some of his facial hair starting to grow in. Hard enough to be a young boy going through puberty, she called this to everyone's attention. Within one afternoon, he lost all of his supposed friends, was destined to eat lunch alone, and constantly had others gossiping about him. I remember seeing him one day shooting basketballs all by himself. I approached him and said something along the lines of, I don't know what everyone's problem is, but... 
I'm sorry, on their behalf, that they're so mean to you. If you are the kid who does not want to engage in the gossip or the plotting against others, then you risk being kicked out from your friend group too. You become an outsider, which makes you a target. If you don't agree with the opinions of your peer, who is more strong-willed and takes up more space, then you will likely be the one who is bullied. Soon enough, I was kicked out of the friend group too, and had to endure the side-eye, the loud whispers, and gregarious laughs from across the cafeteria. I wonder if, in our adult lives, we are re-experiencing this sort of trauma or trying to prevent it from happening. We often create the same cliques in our workspace, engaging in behavior indistinguishable from how we acted in grade school. There is still gossip, there are still parties to which you may or may not be invited. We all innately crave connection, so rather than sacrifice belonging, we tend to sacrifice our own values, interests, and authenticity. It may seem benign to fit in by wearing the same sneakers as everyone else, but on a deeper level, we base our values on what is socially and culturally acceptable in order to meet our desire to fit in. We all want to be liked, accepted, and even admired. Although we have made steps of progress towards inclusivity and diversity, whether it be understanding neurodivergence or accepting various gender identities, what happens on the larger scale might not be as impactful to you in your everyday life if the people you are surrounded by in your own town, school, and home make you feel wrong for being yourself. Because those Bible verses have been forever grained in my memory, first from learning them myself and then teaching them to others, some of them still resonate with me just as song verses or quotes strike a chord and remind me of something I had somehow long forgotten in the amnesia of this human experience. There is a passage in the book of Romans that states, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When we determine the direction of our lives, our pursuits, and our values based on the world, we get tossed in the tumultuous and unrelenting waves. Without any footing in our own internal guidance, we get lost in the chaos. The clarity we search for does not come from outward seeking, it comes from connection to source comes from reverence of nature and the vastness of the universe. It comes from practices of devotion. Why listen to a society that has lost its connection to what is sacred? We have deprioritized non-material pursuits. We have lost our stories, rituals, rites, and ceremonies. We look at practices of devotion as strange, foreign, or unnecessary movements of repetition. The Catholic devotee who prays the rosary having memorized the recitations, or the Muslim performing salah, rolling out a small embroidered carpet facing the direction of Kaaba, one of their holy sites in Saudi Arabia, both have their minds directed towards something greater than themselves, something beyond the physical world. For 20 minutes or one hour, their consciousness makes contact with the inter-realms. They send blessings to family members, pray for good health, or simply show reverence and reaffirm their unwavering commitment to this higher path. 
I think that holy places and practices show us a certain way of being that we are intended to carry with ourselves out into the world. There is something intangible that only holy sites have. The non-religious go in massive crowds to tour chapels in Rome or visit the pyramids of the Mayan civilization in Mexico. Although many claim it is simply for the architecture, I think it is something immaterial that their soul yearns for. To be connected with the numinous in a way that they do not feel sitting at a desk, stuck in traffic, or having yet another conversationless dinner with their spouse. Perhaps the wisdom has settled into the earth beneath these places. Maybe the incantations that were chanted thousands of years ago can be felt throughout the reverberations of time, but not heard by the human ear. There is a resonance far beyond our comprehension, a reminder of cultures come and gone, of the immensity and mystery of life. The other night I was listening to a podcast, only half paying attention, one of the most recent episodes with Russell Brand had turned on. When asked what spirituality is, his response was that if we don't have a personal yet connected and non-dogmatic idea of spirituality, in quotes, You will try to create a spirituality from your preferences. Your preferences will become your god." Coming from a history of drug use, sex addiction, fame, and self-proclaimed narcissism, it seems almost like the perfect archetypal depiction of overindulgence, a life of pleasure to no end, access to anything, anyone, at any time. To have everything that most people desire, yet to have realized he did not find what he was looking for. Living a values-aligned life with strong principles and morals is not the most glamorous. It might not be the most immediately rewarding either. It may seem mundane to others. It is often not what makes it onto Instagram or TikTok. When I started using social media more for work this year, I naturally began picking up on what was trending in the collective, something I've never paid attention to for my entire life. Songs often go viral through social media, and I realized that two of the most listened to songs of 2023, which I heard enough times to make me want to perpetually wear earplugs, have the messages of emotional avoidance, drunkenness, dishonesty, and infidelity. From 707 Shakes Escapism. Just a heartbroken bitch, high heels six inch, in the back of the nightclub sipping champagne. I don't trust any of these bitches I'm with. In the back of the taxi sniffing cocaine. Drunk calls, drunk texts, drunk tears, drunk sex. And from Sam Smith's Unholy. Oe oe oh, he left his kids at hoe oe oh, so he can get that. Mummy don't know, daddy's getting hot at the body shop doing something unholy. Growing up, my parents limited our radio and television time. When my mom was still in our household prior to my parents' separation, she was strict about what we consumed, mentally and physically. She never allowed us to eat candy or fast food, and I don't have a sweet tooth as an adult. 
we didn't watch cable or listen to the top 40 trending songs. When you are a child, it can feel like you're missing out on what other kids are experiencing. You don't pay attention to lyrics and sing every song you heard aloud in a silly tone pretending you are a pop star. I must have been five or six years old when I sung a Britney Spears song and tried to recreate the dance moves I saw in one of her music videos at a friend's house. My sisters were in shock and told me to never do those things again. I didn't understand what was so bad about it. It's just a song. But as an adult, I think my mother's decisions made sense. Now that I understand the power of the subconscious mind and how easily we are influenced by our environments, I'm grateful she provided a filter between my psyche and the very loud world. Even now, going through my 20s, experiencing heartbreak, loss, career changes, identity crises, I find myself still impressionable to what I see repeatedly. After my breakup, I was at home, trying to nurse my fresh wounds, crying more often than not, and slowing down my pace even more so. I took some space from friends and family to work through my emotions. Should I be doing the opposite? Shouldn't a girl in her 20s be sniffing cocaine in the back of a taxi, headed home with a guy she just met? Why doesn't my life resemble what I've seen or heard? To compound that feeling, my closest friend ridiculed me for not coping like most people do. Instead of sitting at home, processing my emotions, I was told to go find some friends and go out to the club like a normal person. Because I wasn't glued to the television as a kid and didn't grow up in an era where I had a smartphone since I was a toddler, I spent my time creating art, writing, or roaming around outside. I learned how to sit with myself even at home, completely alone, and I can genuinely say that I never once felt bored. The more healing work I do, the more I try connecting to the interests and worldview I had in childhood. Even now, instead of relating to people over what is trending in pop culture, I relate over our shared experiences. I will meet a complete stranger and within a few minutes be fully wrapped up in a conversation about God, humanity, and consciousness. I am curious to hear their stories, not talk about celebrity news. There is a pervasive shallowness that has taken a hold of our society. We live completely based on the external world and we have forgotten about the inner journey. Rather than choosing to abstain from casual sex until we meet someone we feel connected to, we go from a breakup immediately to sleeping with someone else to validate our ego or seek some form of revenge. Instead of allowing ourselves to process grief, we distract ourselves, temporarily putting off the pain and usually causing more problems with drugs and alcohol. Swami Vivekananda says, Men may be divided into four classes, those bound by the fetters of the world, the seekers after liberation, the liberated, and the ever-free. Among the ever-free, we may count sages like Narada. They live in the world for the good of others to teach men spiritual truth. Those in bondage are sunk in worldliness and forgetful of God. Not even by mistake do they think of God. The seekers after liberation want to free themselves from attachment to the world. Some of them succeed and others do not. The liberated souls, such as the sadhus and the mahatmas, are not entangled in the world in, quotes, woman and gold. Their minds are free from worldliness, end quote.
This idea of freedom and liberation from worldliness permeates many religions and teachings. The concept is echoed in the words of prophets, monks, shamans, and activists from modern and contemporary times. It seems as though this is something humankind has always grappled with. It is part of being in the flesh. We are easily enticed by what is immoral. We choose dishonesty, deceit, and distraction. It's socially acceptable to make unethical decisions in order to achieve fame and success. Rather than devoting ourselves to something greater, we care only for our immediate needs and desires. The things that are not good for us are very alluring, but this only leads to more banya, bondage, to the material world and a life of suffering. When we seek external validation of our way, we become worldly. This is samsara, the aimless wandering of life in ignorance. I think that the kids who sat alone at lunch, the ones who were bullied because they didn't become a carbon copy of the cool kids, those are the independent thinkers and the true leaders. The path of truth never needs to be seen or acknowledged by anyone else. It is your own connection to your inner wisdom and your connection to God that matters, even when you are ridiculed or feel like the other. Become conscious of what, up until now, has become your God. Is it popularity, approval, attractiveness, pleasure? And find the ways, whichever rituals or practices, that allow you to wash away these impurities of the mind and the soul. Keep steady on the path of truth. Follow your intuition and allow your heart and mind to stay open to the divine. Thank you so much for joining me in this conversation today. I would love for you to join the journey and the community over on Substack. It's more interactive there. You can leave comments and also read an essay version of this podcast. You can follow me on Instagram at sage.wilder or visit my website sagewilder.com where you can send me an email. I will see you next week. Bye.